Let's open our Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And we left off with verse 5, but I might go back and rehearse a few things for you to give you a full outline of the fourth chapter. In the first verse, we see God's ministers, or God's servants, and how that God calls them, and they're instructed and they're empowered to be his servant. And so in verse 1, we're introduced with God's leaders, and Paul says, Let a man so account of us as of ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And then in verse 2, we see God's leaders are really stewards, and they're responsible. It says, uh, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. As stewards, we are responsible to God, and our requirement is to be faithful. It doesn't say that it's required of stewards they be successful, or they be uh, otherwise, but that they be faithful. And this is something God wants us to to be. Then we find in verse 3, God's messengers, uh, they're often misjudged. And let's look at verse 3. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you, or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own self. So we find that uh, God's servants are sometimes misjudged. Sometimes they're overrated. Sometimes they're defamed. Sometimes they uh, are just misunderstood. And Paul said that uh, the, uh, that others would need not judge him, and he wouldn't even judge himself. As we read on down, let's read verses 4 and 5. Well, in the last part of verse 3, he says, Yea, I judge not my own self. Verse 4 says, For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. So Paul would not be judged by others, and he wouldn't even judge himself, but he said, I will wait and be judged by the Lord. And then he goes on to say in verse uh, 5, Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. So what Paul is saying here, that he would not judge himself, he would not be judged by others, but he would wait until the Lord comes and then he would judge him properly. Now that's where we left off with our lesson last week. Now in verses Verse 5, again, uh, shows us that all of God's servants will uh, be properly rewarded when the judge does come. We're not quite through with verse 5, though we did read it in connection with what we've said. But it shows that there will be rewards. For it says he will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. So when our works are brought before us at the judgment seat of Christ, then and there is where all of God's servants that have works that are classified, as we found in the third chapter, that are like gold and silver and precious stones, and they stand the fiery test, then's when they will be, receive a reward, and then when all of the dross and the impurities are burned away, the wood and hay and stubble, it says, and then shall every man have praise of God, the last part of verse 5. Now, we couldn't have praise of God until everything was made right, could we? So when it's all made right at the judgment seat of Christ, and all of the wrongs gotten out of the way, and all the hidden things of darkness are brought to light, and all the rewards are given, then shall every man have praise of God. Now then, in Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, Paul uh, confirms this and says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 
that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he has done, whether it be good or bad. So he assures us, 2 Corinthians 5.10, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now then, back in our passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, let's read verses 6 and 7 now. It says, And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sake, that ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for uh, one against another. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst, didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? Now what Paul is saying here is that God's servants differ as far as gifts and as far as ability is concerned. We cannot ever expect any two people in the church to do the same thing on, with the same ability. Uh, they may have similar gifts, but one may have a little greater ability than another. Or they may have different gifts and another have greater ability in the different gift than, than uh, the other one does in a, in a in likewise a different gift. So whatever a person does, he has to do it as receiving his own gift and his own ability from God to do that particular work. And uh, there's nothing that is lacking in the church to be done if everyone will fill his place. We need to, we're always in need of more workers. We're always in need of people to fill another place. And there was always room but there's still always uh, a job for everyone to do. Even though there's room for new ones, there's a job for everyone that's present to do their job. And uh, that's why people, every person in the church, should feel that they're responsible to do something. And I wish that every person did feel that responsibility and would take some initiative and some responsibility for the gift and the ability that they're able to do, whatever it is. And, of course, everyone cannot teach, everyone cannot sing, everyone cannot preach, but you can. we can all pray, we can all do uh, some of the uh, menial things of the church that has to be done. We can uh, speak a word of, of encouragement to someone else. We can uh, invite the visitors or encourage the visitors in our midst. We can do a lot of things, and everyone should shoulder that responsibility. And you know, when every person in the church will uh, be- begin to do that, well, then, of course, uh, the job will get done. In these two verses, if you look at them, we won't read them again, but uh, Paul reminds us not to think of men above that which is written. He doesn't want us to be proud in the gifts that we have. He said, no one of you be puffed up for one against another. He doesn't want one person to uh, count himself or esteem himself better than another. And then also in verse 7, he, uh, after he tells us that the gifts are different, he doesn't want us to act as if we had all of this of ourselves and didn't have to receive it of the Lord. He said, what do we have that we didn't receive? Look at that. He says, now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? When you receive a blessing, a gift from God to do a work and have the ability to do it, why act as if if we had it ourselves and didn't receive it as a gift from God? 
That's what Paul is saying. So we should recognize the fact that whatever we're able to do, that it's all because of God. The Bible says every good and perfect gift, every gift cometh down from the Father above. That's James 1, verse 17. So if we have any gifts at all, they come from the Lord. And these gifts are according to his own will. The gifts to do the work and the service that he has for us to do in the church. I believe there's a lot of folks that have not yet recognized that they have the ability and the gift to do certain things in the church. And they need to be reminded of the fact that whatever they can do, that is a, that is an ability, that's a gift that God has given them to do, and they should uh, accept that responsibility. Now then, if you look in verses 9 through 14, and that's uh, several verses, We'll find that God's leaders are often called to suffer many hardships. And when we read verses 9 through 14, we will see that they are called upon to do this. And, of course, it's an example to other people. If if we're called upon to suffer hardships, then certainly others may see that they may be called upon to suffer hardships. So if you look at verse 9, Paul says, For I think that God has set forth us, the apostles laughed as it were appointed to death. In fact, if you have a marginal reference concerning the, us, the apostles, it will say, us, the last apostles. Before we read the sufferings and the things that, and the hardships that they were called upon to suffer, let me remind you of something here that Paul is definitely marking out the fact that the last of the apostles were then living. You know, a lot of people claim that they're apostles today, but here Paul says, he is chosen us last, the apostles last. He set us forth last. Now then, it doesn't mean that God's work was over with the apostles, does it? Because Jesus gave the commission to the church. And he, after the apostles passed off the scene, Paul speaks of the fact that God gave to the church evangelists and pastors and teachers. And he says, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So that they are still not left without ministers. They're still not left without pastors. They're still not, not left without teachers. And we're still not left without evangelists. Paul told Timothy to do the work. As a pastor, he said, do the work of an evangelist. So it doesn't mean you always have to have an outside man that is an evangelist. Though this is good at times. Especially when uh, the church is able to have them and, and can uh, get them to come. But. On the other hand, uh, the pastor is to do the work of an evangelist as well. All ministers are to do that work. They may not do it to the extent that an ordinarily called evangelist that goes from place to place can do it, but they do of the same nature of the work. Now then, we find something else here that it tells of the sufferings then that the apostles went through. They were set last in the church. And when they passed off the scene, then it was left to the ministry uh, of the pastors and the teachers and the evangelists. And uh, as Paul says in other places, but I want you to notice what they suffered now. As it were appointed to death, for we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. Now then, before we go on and read this, I want you to look. That Paul says, we're fools, but you're wise. You see, Paul was granting them what they had claimed. They were claiming to be wise. And so Paul was permitting them to glory in that which they were proud of, even though 
I'm sure that Paul was much wiser than most of them. But you see, he says, we're fools, but you're wise. Because they had made such a claim of their gifts and of their uh, privileges and the honor that should be given to them that Paul is using this in a rather ironic way. And he's saying, you, you're wise. He says, we're weak, but you're strong. In other words, you, you claim to be strong. He was in really in a mild way uh, rebuking them for their claims which were uh, far above what they claimed to be. And so if you follow the language, he says, uh, ye are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and are naked, and are buffeted, beaten, and have no certain dwelling place, and labor, working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer. Being defamed, we entreat. Being made as the, the filth of the world, and the offscoring of all things, unto this day. He says, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. Now, how could this serve as a warning? You see, Paul was putting the contrast of what the apostles really suffered to what they claimed to be, and to be so proud and so mighty and so honorable and so strong, wherein the apostle says, we're, we're uh, uh, fools for Christ's sake and you're wise. We're weak, but you're strong. And he was using this to warn them not to be too puffed up and not to be too proud about everything. So God's leaders here are called upon to suffer, as we stated a moment ago in verses 9 through 14. And they suffered many hardships. And you know, sometimes the hardships that others suffer should be an example unto us not to think that we're above and beyond the sufferings, whatever it is. Even being despised and even being hungry and even being weak and being naked and buffeted and having no certain dwelling place and laboring and being reviled and being persecuted, being defamed and counted as the filth of the world and as the offscoring of all things. So we're not beyond this. I know sometimes we think that we never have to suffer anything of that kind or to that extreme. And most of us haven't. Most of us never uh, have and probably... Uh, by the grace of God, I trust we never will have to. But by the same token, we're not above it. If worse comes to worse, we may see some of these things. <clears throat> and we may have seen them in our lifetime. But Paul offers this as a warning. And he says, I write not these things to shame you, though they claim to be above it. He says, but it's my beloved son, I warn you. Now, how, how were they his sons? They were his sons in the faith, in that he uh, had ministered to them, and they were converted through his preaching, you see. They were made believers through Christ, uh, in Christ through Paul's message. They were believers in Christ through his ministry. Now then, he begins to, well, he goes on and says in verse uh, 15 and 16, he tells them how that they are certainly his children in the faith. He says, for though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers, for in Christ Jesus... I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore, I beseech you, be ye followers of me. See what Paul is saying here? That though they claim to have many teachers, and you know some of them in the first chapter we read where some would say, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm Cephas, and others would say, I'm of Christ. 
And yet Paul says, you may have many instructors. And he used a word to exaggerate here, 10,000 instructors in Christ. He knows they do not have that many, but he's using this to show that though they did have, if they did, if they should have 10,000 instructors, yet there was only one that they could look to that had really brought them the saving gospel, and that was Paul. And he had preached the gospel to them, and he says, yet have you not many fathers for in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Now, they were not saved by Paul, but they were saved in and through his ministry. He was a soul winner to them. And a soul winner and a minister of such should be uh, a worthy of being followed if he follows Christ. Look in verse 16. Wherefore, I beseech you, be ye followers of me. Those that have led others to Christ and that have uh, taught them the word of God and that have ministered to them deserve to have those people follow him. Isn't that what Paul is saying here? And yet we find so many people uh, do not count or have any consideration for that fact. I believe that when people are saved in a church, the church has the ministry that goes out and gets them uh, into the, uh, if they accept Christ and the church has a ministry to them and is a teaching ministry to them, then it's their responsibility to be faithful to that church, too. I'm not talking about being faithful to, to a man, uh, though Paul here did deserve their, their honor and their following, but I'm talking about as long as he is faithful in preaching Christ, then they ought to be faithful in supporting him, and that's what Paul was talking about. He says, Wherefore, I beseech you, be you followers of me. Now, he wasn't saying, Just follow me and not follow Christ. But he was saying, follow me as I follow Christ. You see, he wanted them to follow him, but he also wanted to follow the Lord. We should never follow any individual if he does not follow the Lord, regardless of who he is. That's the trouble with these uh, cults that you found uh, and we hear of all the time. And these individuals that have followers after them, well, they cease to follow the Lord, and yet they have all the people, you know, admiring them and following them. And that was partly what was wrong with these Corinthians in the first chapter, remember? They were saying, I am of, a Paul, I am of Paul, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, now this I say that every one of you saith, uh, this verse 12, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. That's what was wrong with them then. They were beginning to divide uh, their people up uh, in partyism. In other words, they were uh, worshiping or following. They, I shouldn't say worshiping. They hadn't gone that far yet. But uh, they were in danger of it when they started following a man to a certain extent. So they were saying, I'm, I belong to Peter. I'm of Cephas. And others were saying, I'm of uh, Apollos. And others, I'm of of uh, Paul, and Paul goes on to say, was Paul crucified for you? No. And so, naturally, he was trying to get them to follow him so far as he followed the Lord, but not beyond this. Now then, he was only showing them that he claimed uh, their honor and respect, and since he had been faithful in preaching Christ to them, and would continue to be faithful, he deserved to be followed. And God's servants should be followed. God's soul-winning servants deserve to be followed if they're following the Lord. Now then, look at verse 17. He says, For this cause I send unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son. Now, Timothy was his beloved son just as they were 
sons. In verse 14, as my beloved sons, I warn you, he said. So Timothy was not his son, but he was his son in the faith. In other words, Paul had the privilege and the opportunity of leading him to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he had done that, he said, my son, I send unto you, uh, I have sent unto you, Timothy, uh, my beloved son, and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you in, into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ. See, his ways were in Christ. As I teach everywhere in every church. I like that about Paul, don't you? You don't find anything inconsistent about the Apostle Paul. He would teach just as strictly salvation by grace through faith in one church as he would another. His message didn't change. His person didn't change. He didn't try to blow himself up as someone that he was not. He said to others, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And he tried to stay the same. And he says, Timothy will bear this out as I've uh, taught him. And he will bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. So everywhere he went and in every church where he taught, he was the same. Now then, in verse 18, he says, Now some of you, uh, now some are puffed up as though I would not come to you. Evidently, some of them wanted Paul to come. And he was willing to do that. But he says, but I will come to you shortly, if the Lord will. He put everything in God's hands, didn't he? I will, if the Lord will. And he says, and we'll know, not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What will ye? Shall I come unto you with a rod, or in love, and in the spirit of meekness? In other words, it depended upon how they would react to, to Paul's message, how he could come to them. If they wouldn't accept his rebuke for, and he's about to rebuke the church for some of what they've done wrong here in the next chapter. And he says, I can come in two ways. I can come in, in love and in the spirit of meekness, or I can come with a rod. That wouldn't mean that he would not love them, even if he came with the rod. But the rod would indicate that they would need chastening and correcting. So if they would be profited by what Paul was writing, in, especially in this next chapter, in correcting them by them being puffed up about certain things. And he'll tell us in the next chapter what they're puffed up about. And if they would be corrected by that, he would come without having to relate to that problem. They would already be corrected. And he could come in love and in meekness, and he wouldn't have to come with a rod. But he said, I will come, and I will come shortly. But notice in verse 18 again, now, some, some are puffed up as though I would not come to you. Some of these people had thought that Paul was just neglecting them and wouldn't come at their beck and call. Now, God's leaders are not free to go at every beck and call of every person that wants them to run here and there. They're not free to do that. Paul was not free to do that. He said he would come. He wasn't going to neglect them. But he wanted them to be corrected by what he was saying uh, so far, and not to feel puffed up if he didn't get to come. He says, if the Lord's will, I'll be there. See, I will come if the Lord will. But you know, a lot of people have a way of trying to dictate to you what the Lord's will is for you. That's not their business to do so. I don't try to come to you, and you should not try to come to me and say, now, it's the Lord's will, preacher, if you do this. I don't come to you and say, now, listen, it's the Lord's will, you do this. 
and try to tell you what to do. God is able to reveal his will to you just the same as he is to me. And he will do that. And Paul says, you people that are puffed up act like it's just because I don't want to come to you. But he says, I will come. And he says, I will do this if the Lord will. And when I do come, you'll know the speech. You'll know the speech of one that is of power. And it's not the speech of one that's puffed up or one that has pride, but of the power. And he goes on to explain that in the next two verses. Now then, in the fifth chapter, we're going to find that he rebukes this church at Corinth for several things. And the first verse reveals how that they were rebuked for allowing gross immorality to go unjudged in the church. They were letting the church, there was a wickedness in the church that was common knowledge. It was not idle gossip. There's a difference. It was known to all the people there that it says it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you and such fornication that is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. Evidently, in this case, it was this man's step, uh, it was his stepmother, which would still be his father's wife, not his own blood and kin mother, because we can detect that uh, even that far is enough incest and a terrible wickedness that should be judged in the church. So Paul says, there's a, it's common knowledge. It's reported commonly. In other words, Paul is not going by someone over here that's putting out some idle gossip and it's not known to all the people. He's putting, he's saying something that is known to all the people of the church, how one is acting. There was one man that was acting completely, uh, even a, a beyond what the Gentiles, and in those days the Gentiles were classified as the heathen, uh, a more terrible thing than they would be guilty of doing. And so he's rebuking them for allowing this immorality to go unjudged in the church. This wickedness was common knowledge and not just idle gossip, and it should have been judged by them. They they should have known that they couldn't let the man get by with that kind of uh, thing. Then he rebukes them in verse 2. They were rebuked for their pride. Verse 2. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. In other words, they were so proud that they would not judge this sin that was in their midst. Verse 6 goes right along with it. It it says, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? They were glorying. They were proud. But Paul says the pride they had was not good. What were they proud of? They were proud of their spiritual gifts. They thought that they just had everything above everybody else. They were so pious. Remember, he's already rebuking them when he says, You're strong, and we're weak. You're honorable, but we're despised. In the verses we read in the previous chapter, and in the, uh, let's see, the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the 14th chapter, I want you to notice what he says here. In verse 26, and is speaking of the spiritual gifts that they had in the church. He says, How is it, brethren, when you come together, every one of you hath a song, hath a doctrine. Seem like they all claim to have a different gift. Hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. He says, When you come together, you all claim to have all these things. He says, Let all things be done unto edifying. So really, they were so proud of their gifts, they had misused them, and they, they claimed 
to have one gift above another. You know, every one of you hath a song. Every one of you hath a tongue. Every one of you hath a revelation. Every one of you have has an interpretation. And Paul was showing them that instead of mourning over their condition, verse 2, back in our text, and ye have puffed up and have not rather mourned that he hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. They didn't even have enough spirituality to go about even though they had spiritual gifts that God had given them, they were not spiritual enough to put away sin from their midst. One in the church living in incest. And it should have brought them to their knees, to humiliation. Isn't it a sad day when the world has a higher moral standard than the people of the church? He says this is a sin that was not would not even be named among the heathen, among the Gentiles, and yet they were permitting it in the church and knowingly and openly, it was known to all the people there in that church, of course. And they were not doing anything about it. And Paul says that they should have disciplined this man. And he encourages them to do so. We're going to find that he does in the next few verses. So he says, uh, you should have mourned rather than be puffed up. Now look at verse 3. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that is so done. This deed. In other words, I've already made up my mind. I know what this man deserves. I know what kind of decision needs to be made about him. They were rebuked here because they uh, did not do something about this wicked church member. And Paul already knew what to do. Let's read, go on and read verses 4 and 5. It says, uh, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together, that is, the church is assembled, and my spirit, in other words, I, I'm agreeing with you in this. I'm in full agreement with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, with God's power resting upon you to make such decision. And because He, Jesus has already uh, told us that that's what should be done in the way of discipline, he says, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now then, so Paul is rebuking them for not doing something about it, and he already knew what he was going to do. Where is the reference? In Matthew chapter 18, let me give you this, verses 15 through 17. <clears throat> when there was a dispute in the church, Jesus said this in verse 15. And he taught, he taught I should say, church discipline. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. Suppose this fellow had done this wrong, and it's not like he was really just trespassing against another person, because this was a sin that was known to all the church, but the same principle could be used to try to correct him. One brother, or maybe a couple of the deacons could go to him, a couple of men, and say, now listen. We know what you're doing, and we will not permit that kind of a life, and you to come and, and be a member of this church and represent this church and live uh, in that kind of sin. So that would be the equivalent of a brother going to try to correct it. So he says, if, if he's corrected, thou hast uh, gained thy brother. Let's go on and read what Jesus said. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. In other words, use more of the brethren. We mentioned uh, probably this second thing at the first place, but if one would not accomplish it, then two or three, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses. But look at the next step. In verse 17, Jesus said, And if he shall neglect to hear them, notice there's one on one first, 
and then there's two or three brethren, two or three witnesses, and then if that fails, he says, and if he, he neglect to hear them, that's more than one brother, it says, tell it unto the church, that's the congregation. But if he neglect to hear the church, if he will not be corrected by the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. And Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So, as touching a dispute in the church, Jesus said, I'm with you in disputes as well as in other things. And I want you to correct those things and discipline the membership of the church. And if they will not be disciplined by one or two witnesses, uh, then if they will not be disciplined by the church itself, then you are to... Uh, put them out of the church, you're to disqualify them as far as fellowship is concerned. And on that basis, he says, if they will not hear the church, let him become as a heathen man and a publican. And that's what Paul was wanting these people to do. In fact, he said, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, let me hurry and give you this, and I'll try to give you as much as I can. So, the church was rebuked for not doing something about it. They were rebuked because they did not realize what effect their sin would have on the whole church. Look at verses 6 through 8. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Put a little yeast in the flour and see what happens in the bread dough. It will leaven the whole of that lump of dough, won't it? A little leaven, a little yeast. And uh, then it says, Purge out therefore the old leaven. Purge out that man that's that has the sin, that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, these people were not realizing just how much this one man's sin would affect the whole. It would leaven the whole church. It would again, uh, eventually permeate the whole church, so that their church would be looked upon as one that had a man there that was living in fornication and open sin and no one doing anything about it. That's why they were to be disciplined. It's, there's very little of it done in these days, but it should be done today just as it was then when you find such things. I'm thankful we don't have, we don't see that to the extreme, but if we did have it in the church, it would be up to us, uh, to the church to get together and go to this a man and try to correct that situation, wouldn't it? And now we find <clears throat> that uh, <clears throat> we must read on quickly verses 9 through 13 and give you the last point or two. It says, um, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to keep, keep company with fornicators, yet not altogether with fornicators of this world, or with co the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters. Paul says if there's any other kind of sin that exists, don't keep company with that. He says this, for then must you needs go out of the world. You you certainly would have to completely get out of the world if, if you got rid of all of those. But he says you're not to keep company with them. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is a brother uh, be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one, no, not to eat. In other words, don't have any common, ordinary fellowship with that kind of a person. For what have I to do to judge them that are within, without? Do, do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judges. 
Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Paul says, get that wicked man out of the church. So he, he's rebuking the church because they had not heeded his previous warning. Notice he said, I have written unto you, I wrote unto you, in verse 9, in an epistle, not to keep company with fornicators. He had already told them that they shouldn't do this. And again in verse 11, but now I have written unto you not to keep company. In verse 11, and he named, calls the role. They had not heeded his warning. They were warned against associating with the immoral. God's people should not associate with immorality. The moral standards are low today, aren't they? But God's people are to be uh, faithful and true to his word and not to associate with immorality. And then again, God's people are to be separated from such as these. And then I want to give you something else. If you'll read just two verses in the second letter that Paul writes to them, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, you'll see the effect of Paul's letter on the church and the immoral member. It did some good. And in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and you look over there, if you will, quickly, please, with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 7 and 8, it says, so that contrarywise, you ought rather to forgive him. And if you read the context, I think he's referring to the man being punished enough because of that which was inflicted by many, that says in verse 6. And, it, and Paul is telling them, since he's been punished enough by that which was inflicted by many, in verse 7 he says, so that, rather, so that contrarywise, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow, Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. In other words, Paul is saying you can restore a man that's repented. Evidently, this man, if it's the same person, if it is not the same person, whoever it was that was affected by the letter and corrected, and that seems to be the case, they would should be restored so that there's no sin too great to be forgiven. And when it is forgiven... There can be a restoration to the fellowship of the church, but not until it is forgiven. But if we continue to cast a man out that once that as if he's repented and really turned back to the Lord and wants to live right and do right, then we should not keep rejecting him, but we should be very cautious and, and receive him back and show him our love. But then if he, of course, if he turned back to do the same thing, it would be up to the church again to exercise discipline against such a one. Let's stand together for a word of prayer.